0: Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you prayed for us that we might be sanctified by the truth. Your word is truth, you told us. And so God, our prayer now is that you would use your word to sanctify us and to make us more like you. Amen. Amen. Turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew, if you're here this morning visiting or not familiar, it should be the first book in the New Testament in your copy of God's Word, about two-thirds of the way or maybe three-quarters of the way through the Scriptures. Matthew 18, as you turn there, I wonder if you ever had this experience, and, and I would say a lot of maybe middle school and high school students, especially maybe elementary school students, have this experience where you've been in the hallway, and as you walk through the hallway, someone uh, in, I guess, Mr. Crawford's position formerly, right, walks up and the vice principal looks at you and says, what are you doing in the hallway, right? And in that moment, this could be a a moment of great consternation, right? Or it can be a, a moment of kind of confidence where you say, I have permission to be here, right? Uh, our teachers always gave us this big obnoxious ruler or something, you know, that you had to carry around in the hallway and to tell the administration or others that we had the authority to be there. We had permission. Someone had said, you can do this, you can walk the hallways, you can go do that, or go do this, or go to the office, whatever it might be. You have authority, you have an opportunity to do that or passage that we've been looking at last week and then we'll continue in this week in Matthew eighteen verses fifteen to twenty deals with this issue of authority. And this so we'll see today, last week in verses fifteen to seventeen, we, we talked about what is commonly referred to as church discipline, the 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 calling that the Lord gives us to to call brothers and sisters to account when sin is in their lives, to approach them with love and grace, to encourage them to to leave uh, the sin and to repent and to turn back unto him. He gave instructions for the church to do this, even to the extent of removing one from their midst. And the question, perhaps, that would come before us is, well, who gives you the right to do that? If church discipline goes to its fullest extent and someone is has to be removed, or someone is pronounced, that the church looks and says, we can't affirm this person as a believer for the way they're living in sin, habitually in sin. Well, someone might look and say, well, who gives you the right to do that? By whose authority can you make that pronouncement? Verses 18 to 20 answer that question. Verse 18 to 20 answer the question, with Jesus gave the church that authority to make that decision? Let's read the Word of God this morning, and we'll talk more about this. We're going to back up and read again, starting in verse 15, just for context. Remember, Jesus is talking about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, in the Messianic kingdom. And he says this in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, we see the teaching in the New Testament very clearly that Jesus is the head of the church. He's the the leader of the church. What that means for us practically is when we gather here as a local body of Grace Baptist Church, I am not the head of this church. None of the pastors or the elders are the head of this church. Christ alone is the head, the authority of the church. And this passage talks about how Christ has therefore given the church authority over certain matters here on earth. He talks about that in Matthew 16. When Peter makes that great confession of faith, and he talks about it here again, really using the same statement, that the church is given, matters of a, or given authority in the matter of church discipline within the body of Christ. And so verses 18 to 20 explains that this authority has been given to the church and, and what it looks like. If you look at verse 18 to 20, if you, if you have questions, you weren't here last week, and you have questions about 15 to 17, I would encourage you to go back and, and listen to last week's sermon to, to clear some of those questions you might have up. But, but this morning, looking in verse 18 to 20, we see Jesus essentially progressing through his instructions and in answering that question we talked about. What gives you the authority to carry this out? Well, Jesus shifts here when he gets to verse 18, he shifts to, to speaking in the plural, He's speaking to the body of Christ. He's not just speaking to individuals, but he's speaking to the gathered church, the, the people of God, giving them the authority to carry out matters of discipline. As a side note, you can, you can look at Acts 15 later. In Acts 15, we have an example of this. It's the Jerusalem Council. And there in the Jerusalem Council, you have the instructions and the, the event, the account, where it's not just the leaders of the church coming together to deal with the situation, but it's the leaders and the church body. It was the church as a whole that gathered to deal with the situation. So you can look at Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, to see an example of what's going on here. But when we come to 18 to 20, I would say that we need to remember the context. And the reason is because it's so easy to, to pick and choose verses out of their context and just to apply them anywhere we want to. Verse 19 and 20 really have been verses over the years that have been applied that way. They're just kind of drawn out. And we just need to remember that when we look at 18 to 20, the context demands that we understand this is Jesus speaking about and teaching in the context of church discipline, the context of one calling a brother to repent of sin and to come back into fellowship, hoping that, as we talked about last week, that you would win your brother, that he might be restored. Remember, that's always the goal of church discipline is restoration, the good of the body of Christ, the glory of God. So the context here is that. It's the context of church discipline. Now, the authority given to the church here is the authority to bind and loose. The authority to bind and loose. Now, what in the world does that mean? It's not terminology that we really go around saying, hey, did you bind anything this week? Did you loose anything this week? You know, you guys would all go, I have no idea what you're talking about, right? Okay, binding and loosing is terminology that maybe is a little uh, cumbersome, for us, when we look at the text and we, we see it translated, what in the world is going on here? What does this exactly mean? Well, to bind is to declare something as prohibited or unlawful. Okay, It's to make that pronouncement. These, these are terms that were used in kind of a judiciary sense. Whereas to loose what meant to permit or to declare something is lawful. These terms in the Greek, in the New Testament, they were anchored in rabbinic tradition where they would use these terms in this phrase to describe something that, that they pronounced as permitted or not permitted, as lawful or not lawful, something that affirm they would affirm or something that they would not. Particularly here, again, we're talking contextually, right? Important. We're talking contextually that this is about church discipline. It is about calling a brother to, uh, to repent of sin. And so in this case, it's referring specifically when you talk about binding and, and loosing, permitting, not permitting, something lawful, unlawful, it's speaking towards the declaration that the church would make regarding sin. A declaration the church would make regarding sin. Now, the wording here is, is kind of difficult, isn't it? Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the question that comes to my mind is, is does this mean that whatever decision that we make here kind of bends, as one scholar described it, bends heaven's will to conform to us? That's a pretty important question to ask, right? Does our decisions determine heaven? Are we in control? It's an important question. Or is it flipped? Do we bend our will to that of God, right? Now, the answer to this question is found in the reality of of what a very literal translation is here. Sometimes, you know, translations, you have to remember, anytime you look at an English translation of the Bible, you're looking at something that a group of scholars have taken the Greek, and they've done the best they can to come together and interpret it into English so that we can understand it. Some translations are, are very literal. Some translations are what's called more dynamic, where they're, they're kind of taking the equivalent, of, this is what it means, and so you can understand it, right? Now, this is a side note. On that word, translations, we need to be careful what translations we're using. I I would never devote my spiritual life and growth to a translation by one individual. Right? That's why your best translations, your most reliable translations, are groups of Greek scholars that know far more than I could ever hope to know about Greek and Hebrew. And they come together and they wrestle through these issues and they come together and make decisions on how to best relay the accuracy of the text into our language. Well, the New American Standard version is very literal. If you have an NASB this morning, I know some of you have that, you like it. I use it to study. It's a little more cumbersome. It's more wooden because it's very literal. But here it helps us to understand what this means. So the New American Standard translates it as this. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Okay, the ESV, the NIV, I think even the, I think the King James, if I'm not mistaken, all of them interpret it very similar here as far as what you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, if you hear that in the English, it just means, it it makes you think, okay, what we do here is going to happen there, right? We look at it very literal, the NAS, that whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. We understand, okay, this is a unique situation, The, the tense in the Greek is very rare, and it's used, scholars will say, it's used intentionally here by the Lord. Intentionally. That he who has said it, it's called his future perfect shall have been. And so what it simply means is that it kind of conveys the idea that tense is that, that what occurs in the future, so what occurs in the future has been fixed in the past. What occurs in the future has been fixed in the past. It, it, it's used to, to help us understand that the gathered church makes decisions that have already been made in heaven. Our will is bent around what God has established, what God has decreed, what God has ordered. So when we gather in the Lord under the authority of Scripture to affirm or not affirm that one is a believer, we are simply declaring the reality of what it is in heaven. That's the importance of us gathering together in the Spirit, among one another, submitting to the Word of God. That this isn't some church tradition. It isn't the opinion of me or any of you. This is us submitting to God's holy word to make judgment according to his word, what is sin and what is not, what attests that one is a follower of Christ and what does not. That's the importance of us coming together in him. In verse 19, we see that. He talks about the importance of us gathering together as one. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We talked about last week that, that in matters of church system, when you come together and, and you bring someone with you, the importance of that is that it brings accountability to make sure that you are making sound judgment, right? It also brings weight. It carries weight to the one that you come and approach, well, here we again are brought back to the reality that when two or three gather, we are uh, voicing the same, we are gathering in unity, there is accountability there that we operate under. Multiple people agreeing is in the, is, It brings about the accountability found in numbers to make a right and good decision. I think the importance that we need to remember here is that there is no single person in Scripture that is tasked with church discipline. There's no single person given the authority to carry out church discipline. So what that means is, even though my title is the lead pastor, I don't have the authority to look at you and say, we're removing you from our church family. I don't have the authority to look to you and say, I can't affirm that you're a believer before me. That's not the authority that I've been given. The church has been given that authority. That's important because there are some traditions where individuals have been given that authority. Individuals have been given the authority to pronounce what is sin and what is not sin. Here we operate under what's known as congregational polity. It means that we recognize that God has set forward elders, pastors to lead that we lead out, that's our task, but we do so with the accountability of the congregation and with the authority of the congregation. So we lead out in matters that we're tasked to lead in, but in matters such as church discipline and membership and other matters of, of the sort, we call on the congregation to come together and to make those decisions as a body. That's why we function in that way. We understand that that is a, a good thing. It's the right thing for us to do. It's to call upon the people of God. What that means practically for us is this, is that I don't have the authority to bring one person into the body of Christ as a member at Grace Baptist. That's not the authority given to me. Instead, when someone comes on membership and seeks to join with us as a covenant member, that is a decision of the church. Now, I will stand before you and attest to that person that we have spoken, that we have talked about the gospel, we've heard their testimony as best as we can, we would attest and affirm and say, this person is a believer, right? But the authority to bring them in is a decision of the church, which also means, in turn, that I don't have the authority to say, you're removed as an individual. That is a decision of the church, that the church comes together, Right? to join and to make any decision along those lines. Verse 20 is simply the affirmation of the Lord that where his people are gathered, he is present among them. Now, this isn't just a statement that, oh, well, we have to have two or three people for the Lord to be here. Right? Again, the whole of Scripture attests that that's not the case. Right? We have the indwelling Christ, the Holy Spirit, in our midst. He indwells us. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? So we know that it's not as though I'm walking alone. Well, God's not with me. I I need another person to come alongside me so that God can be with me. It's not that. The interesting thing is, again, when you start digging into context, you find out that rabbinic tradition at the time held that if two believers came together and the word was with them, the word was between them, so to speak, that that meant that the Shekinah glory of God was among them, that the presence of God was there. And so Jesus, in this moment, says, Listen, when two or three are gathered, I am among them. Me. I'm the glory of God. I am there. We gather together in the unity of the Lord. We have the assurance that he is with us. We understand that. We know that. Rejoice in that. So let me just wrap all this up and tie, uh, hopefully, maybe a nice little neat bow on it and a difficult passage to understand in the text. If I had to summarize 18 and 20, here's how I would summarize it. That matters of church discipline should be carried out as the corporate body of Christ under the authority of Scripture in fellowship and communion communion with the Holy Spirit with God. It's as the corporate body under the authority of Scripture in fellowship with God. In so doing, we have confidence that we are moving correctly in step with the leading of God Almighty. Now, at this point in the text, Peter's mind is racing, right? Peter's heard what Jesus has said, and you can imagine Peter going, "Yeah, but um, what about um, yeah this one? How about this guy? What about this guy? What?" Mm. And so Peter asks a question, a question that maybe a lot of us would ask. Peter says, "Well, what if it keeps happening? I mean, what if uh, I win my brother, so to speak, and then next week he sins again? I still forgive him." Let's read in verse twenty-one. Verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me? And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers till he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father, would do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So Peter asked a very honest question, I think, here. A question I think is helpful. It's it's one of those questions, honestly, in Scripture I look back on and go, thank you, Lord, for recording this in Scripture. Because it's helpful for us. It's beneficial for us to have this and to consider this question. See, when he asks this question, Jesus responds to him by calling him to a very deep, persistent posture of forgiveness. That's how he responds to him. He calls him to to forgiveness. Now, before we dig into the parable, I want to, I think, establish something that Paul teaches is a very important background, backdrop for how we understand what's going on here. There's a difference between what Paul calls worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. I, I don't think there's anywhere in here that would cause us to think from Matthew 18, 15, all the way to 35, that Jesus is teaching us that, you know what, you don't need to worry about one who's just habitually in sin and just keeps on giving this flippant apology. It's like, oh, I got caught. Sorry, I didn't mean to get caught. I, you know, I you know, don't like the consequences. I feel really bad about it. And then just, boom, right back into it. Don't, don't see that feeling bad about the consequences of sin, about getting caught in sin. That's what Paul would describe as worldly sorrows. Let me just read, this is Second Corinthians 7. Second Corinthians 7, let me just read this to you. It's verses 8 through 11 if you're taking notes or you want to flip over there. Second Corinthians 7, verse 8 through 11. Paul gives us a good description of this so we can know the difference. And I think it's important for us to understand as we think about what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 18. What we read in 2 Corinthians 7 is this. Paul, Paul has written 1 Corinthians, right? A very difficult letter. He's confronted some serious sin. He's called for repentance. He's called for the church to deal with sin. And it's a hard letter, right? Hard letter in 1 Corinthians. So in 2 Corinthians, he writes and he says, Listen, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the Letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So what Paul's doing here is he's saying, listen, you you hear Paul's heart, right, in the letter saying, man, this is hard. I I hate that I grieved you. And he he says that, Not really, because I see that your grief resulted in repentance. And so he finds great joy in that. Paul's saying, listen, I don't want to just grieve you just for the sake of making you feel bad. That's not my goal. My goal is to see you repent with godly repentance that leads to salvation. And so he talks about that. He says, listen, godly grief leads you to repentance that leads to salvation without regret. We're to speak difficult truths into people's lives, even though it might grieve them in the moment, even though it might be difficult in the moment. Why? Because our hope is that it would produce repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief, right, he says, just leads to death. How do we know? How do we know the difference? Well, Paul really describes it here. He describes it as being earnest, eager to be cleared. It is earnest. It's sincere. It's real. There's a, there a, a, a hatred of the sin. There's a, a longing and a zeal to be made right. So when we think about this and we, we think about the teaching of Matthew 18 and we, we think about it in the whole of the New Testament, the teaching of Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, we te- think about the teaching of John in 1 John where he talks about that those who just habitually live in sin are lying. They're not part of the body of Christ, they're not a true believer if we just habitually wallow in sin and continue in it. We see that also with the teaching in in 1 John that if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We see those things. We understand that we battle sin as believers, right? We struggle with it. But genuine godly sorrow over over sin will lead us to genuine repentance that results in salvation, that brings us into right standing with the Lord. Well, just worldly sorrow, it produces death. And it may be grief at the moment. It may be grief that you made someone feel bad. It may be grief that you got caught but it doesn't issue forth in true, genuine repentance. So the instruction that Jesus gives us is not just dealing with one who's wallowing in sin, but it's one who repents, Matthew 18, 15, who turns and listens, who is one or one that does not. Now, the parable here is talking about forgiveness, right? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. One who has sinned, who has hurt you, who has wronged you, and repents. How often do we forgive that one? Let's look at the parable. Peter presents a number that he's pretty confident about. Seven times. The reason he says that is because the tradition at the time was three. If if something happens three times, then you should forgive them three times, and after that, all bets are off, right? Well, so Peter says, I'm going to double that and add one, buddy. Right? Um, and so he says, how about seven? And Jesus says, oh, pfft, seven? No way. Uh, um, we'll go 77 or 70 times seven. Different translations and see that interpreted a little differently. What Jesus is doing is he is speaking in such a way that he's making the point that your forgiveness knows no end. There's not a time where you go, you know what? Oh, You you say, ooh, that sin pushed you over the edge, no more forgiveness for me. Sorry. Now I'm going to just hold it over your head for the rest of our time together. No. Uh, It's understanding that among the people of God where sin occurs, grace and forgiveness are right on the hills. Grace and forgiveness is close behind in the people of God. Jesus says in verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, again, this is just a reminder by him in the text that this is talking about how we function as the people of God. And we know that as the people of God, while we are indeed redeemed by Christ, we are not perfect. We battle sin, we deal with temptation, our flesh is weak, we still have indwelling sin that is waging war against the flesh. And Paul wrote of that, that there's a battle in the believer between walking in the Spirit, living in the Spirit, and in the flesh, that they're at war with one another. And we experience that. We know it. It means that we indeed sin. It means that there will indeed be times when people will speak words that hurt you. They will do something that hurts you or wrongs you. They will let you down and disappoint you. They will fail to do what should have been done. They will fail to carry out their obligations, their commitment to you. It will happen. It's going to happen. We are sinners living in a fallen world, but we are sinners who live as those who are redeemed by a perfect Savior. We understand that the kingdom of heaven, as such, as we live in a fallen world, the kingdom of heaven is not predicated on justice alone. It's not something where we function and live with each other with like a a, a big, you know, the heaviest, we probably won't all, you know, get all, all hardback Bibles. You know, we want a hardcover, not a soft one. This wouldn't hurt as bad. We need a hardcover Bible if it's just predicated on justice so that when Scott sins, man, I can whack him a good one. You know? I don't want to take it easy on him. I want to really let him have it if it's predicated on just justice. But God's kingdom is not based just on justice. God's kingdom, as his people, operates with justice. We don't set it aside, right? We don't set aside the holiness and righteousness of God, but we understand mercy and grace and love and forgiveness. And we operate within all of that. We operate within it. This parable is a beautiful example. Verses 24 to 27, we see the mercy and the forgiveness of the king. Those three verses give us just a beautiful display of mercy and forgiveness. The the servant owed 10,000 talents. That would be in excess. It would be over $2.5 billion in our day. I mean, the guy owed a serious debt. This wasn't pocket change. And he could not pay the debt. It was beyond his means. He couldn't pay it. We need to let that settle in for a moment. He owed a debt he could not pay. It was enormous. Justice was what? Justice would be to sell him. All his family. Everything he had. That's justice. To receive back that debt. But what happens? The servant pleads for mercy, pleads, please be patient with me. I'll I'll give it back to you. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll repay everything to you. And what does the king do? The king, in verse 27, says, Out of pity for him, the master releases him and forgave him the debt. That is mercy, compassion, forgiveness. Forgiveness. But then what we see is, really, if we're just hearing this the first time, and you can imagine Jesus in this moment relaying this story, it really would be quite shocking. But then at that point, then you hear that the same thing happens. This guy has been relieved of this incredible debt. And he goes out, and he sees another servant come to him who owes him, um, what is it, 10 denarii, is that what it was? 100 denarii, thank you. Equivalent to roughly maybe around 4,000, maybe a little more. Several thousand dollars. And so, just in your mind, if you're hearing the story, you're thinking, what? Okay, well, he's going to forgive. I mean, he's been forgiven so much, he'll forgive this servant, surely. No, he doesn't. He demands justice. He, he, he comes and the, the other servant is begging for mercy, the same as he had done. He's begging for forgiveness to be shown to him. But evidently, the forgiveness shown to him made no difference, and he did not forgive his fellow servant, he didn't show mercy. He didn't show compassion. And so at this point, his fellow servants come and hold him accountable. And I don't think this is an accident that it says that here. His fellow servants call him to account. They call and come talk to the king. Right? They come and call what's wrong, wrong. And they deal with it. The problem is it is revealed in verse 33. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Is the question that the king asked him. I forgave you. Shouldn't you have forgiven him? What's, where's the disconnect here? What's going on? You should forgive as you have been forgiven. Now, verse 35 brings up another question, right? (laughs) This text, I was kind of laughing in my office this week, thinking, man, there are several statements in here that are just hard. Verse 35 is a a tough question, and, and here's the question. Is God's forgiveness of me contingent on my forgiveness of others? Will God only forgive me if I forgive others? This is another real and tough question, isn't it? Now, again, we know from the whole of Scripture that justification is by faith alone. It's not faith plus my forgiveness of others. That we are saved by God's grace alone through faith alone, right? Ephesians 2. 1 through 10, especially 2, 8, and 9, we see a very clear statement of that in Galatians 2, 16. We see a really beautiful outworking description of that in Romans 3, verses 22 to 26. But we understand, we know that that justification, being declared righteous before God, that decision is made by God according to faith. It's not works. It's not something we earn. So if we know that, then we go, okay, then what does this mean? Well, what it means is we know that this verse then has to be thinking of something other than this conditional forgiveness for salvation. It has to be thinking about something. There, there's two options, I would say. You have two options on how you might understand this. The first one would be to refer back to what we looked at in Matthew 6, to 14, the end of the Lord's Prayer. A very similar statement is made. And at, at that time, we talked about how, it could be dealing with forgiveness on a relational level rather than a salvific level. In how we relate to one another and how we relate to God rather than earning or meriting our salvation being cast aside. Each of the passages that make this reference, Matthew 6, 12-14, Mark 11, 25, and our current passage, they're all in the context of our relationship with other believers and then that statement made out of it. That's the context they're written. So so you can see that the forgiveness found in justification is secured by faith in Christ alone. But perhaps that relational forgiveness of sin that damages our relationship with others and to God is perhaps what is in view here. So if we come to God seeking unadulterated fellowship and forgiveness from him while we have not shown forgiveness to others, then we will remain in sin, our relationship with God is hindered. That would be one way to understand this, to look at it. The other way would be this, is that Jesus is teaching us that a lack of forgiveness reveals the true state of our heart, and that our standing with God is one who is not forgiven. The the truth that we would remember at this point is that forgiven people are forgiving people, The passage we meditate on of Ephesians 4.32 where we're instructed to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Colossians 3.13, similar. Bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That our forgiveness is evidence of of our regeneration, our forgiveness is evidence that we truly are believers. And so if we're unwilling to forgive others in our lives, it reveals a heart that is not genuinely repentant before the Lord and knows not the forgiveness of God. It just reveals our true character. And we would understand that. That would make sense because we understand that, that out of the heart flows our words and our deeds, Right? If, if we say that's exposing our heart, we know that a forgiven heart is always going to lead us to forgive from the heart. It will. It's the overflow. Mark 7, 14, or, yeah, 14 to 23, Matthew 12, 33 to 37, both talk about that, that, that the heart overflows in our words and actions. So if our heart is one that is, that is seasoned and marinated and experienced forgiveness, then it will overflow in forgiveness of others. And so in that understanding, God's forgiveness and ours are indeed related, but in a way that reveals we are forgiven, and as such we model forgiveness towards others. It would be to hear the Lord's words in Luke 17, 3-4. Pay attention to yourselves. Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you Must forgive him. The bottom line. Here's the bottom line. What we know for certain here at this point is this. Is that God's people are to forgive each other. That's the bottom line. We can wrestle with and talk about, well, what is the Greek? What does this look like? How is it? How does it reconcile? How does it fit in the whole of Scripture? The bottom line is, as God's people, we are to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave us. Forgiven people are to be forgiving people. Now, where does this leave us? Where does this leave us? When we get to the end of the parable, there's two things we need to see. There's two things we need to see. Here's the first thing, is that we need to see the picture of God's abundant forgiveness. We need to see a picture of God's abundant forgiveness. We are all like the first servant. We owe a debt that we cannot pay. Every one of us, every one of us have rebelled against the infinite, holy God. It's important, that word infinite, that we rebelled against him His good will and law we've transgressed against. His glory we've profaned. His holiness we have hidden by our sin. His standard we have fallen short of. We all owe a debt. Now, for some perhaps gathered today and many in our culture, this seems antiquated. It seems irrelevant. Because maybe you or people you know have bought into the lie that, that either uh, morality just doesn't exist, it's absolutely relative, so no one can stand up and say you have fallen short of this standard. By whose standard? That's my own standard. We live in a culture that, that teaches that morality is based on either the individual or the majority. It all depends on the moment. It depends on the situation. Well, this is right because the majority is doing it. Oh, okay, I'm over here. Well, actually, this is right because you feel it. Oh, okay, so I determine it over here. Which one is it? Is it me or the majority? I don't know. That's cultural confusion. It's leaving our culture in a mess, right? Who determines what? What is morality based on? It's bouncing to and from all over the place. Whatever the narrative decides. What are The standard's constantly changing. The goalpost keeps getting moved. You know what the problem with that is? Is that the reality testifies that there is indeed a moral standard. Reality testifies that everywhere we're surrounded with, we understand and operate under the reality, the truth, that there is a moral standard. We all have an innate sense of right and wrong. We all have it. Why? Other creatures don't. My dog has no innate sense that it's wrong to wake me up at 3 a.m. to go to the restroom. Completely selfish. Animals don't have that. Animals try to avoid punishment, something that's going to hurt them. They don't want to get hurt. But they make no decision based on morality. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes about that, about how that is the image of God in man. It's the image of God that, that we have the ability to function and to process moral right and wrong. We have a sense of right and wrong. It's because God is our creator, and because God is our creator, he has given us that sense. He has established that truth. He is set before it. He is the Lord of creation. He rules over creation. He sets forth what is right and wrong. And as much as we want to go, well, no, I feel this way or I feel that way. I don't think this. It's not good for me. What's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. God has established that. We live under that. And the problem is we have rebelled against it. We've broken that. We've transgressed it. We've fallen short of it. And we owe a debt that we cannot afford. We can't pay it. It's not as though I can heap up enough righteousness to pay for my sinfulness. I can't do it. The good news, though, is that God is a God of justice. He is holy and righteous, and he is a God of grace and mercy, forgiveness, abounding in steadfast love. And so the good news is we look to Scripture and we read about that. We, our sin is revealed, but then we understand Texts such as Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Psalm 86, 5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Acts 2, 38, Peter looks to the people in his sermon. He says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts 10, same thing. To 10 verse 43, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness for, of sins through his name. There's two common themes in every one of those passages. That one cries out to the Lord, looks to the Lord, and God forgives him. Do you see that? Every one of them, I acknowledge my sin to you. I called upon you. Repent, be baptized, believe in Him. Every time each of those met with the forgiveness of God. So that, so that Paul, in writing to the church, rejoices to the church and reminds them of what we have in Christ. He writes to the church in Ephesians 1 7, He says, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace not according to anything i've done not according to who i am not according to what i know but according to the riches of his grace colossians 1:13 and 14 says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins we possess that we have that O people of god we walk in the forgiveness that is ours in christ that's good news It's good news this morning that God is a forgiving God and His forgiveness is found through repentance and faith in Christ. Listen, you need to know. You need to know this morning, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, that God is absolutely, infinitely, holy, just, and righteous and He will and does punish sin. There is a right and wrong. You do owe a debt of sin. And you can't repay it. But you also need to know that God is loving and merciful and gracious and forgiving. And that on the cross of Calvary where Jesus, the Son of God, died, perfect justice and perfect love meet. Because the justice of a holy God is poured out On sin and the love and the grace of God is displayed in making a way for sinners like you and I to be saved. That is a beautiful thing. That's good news. Good news is you don't earn your salvation, you don't work all your life to try to pay off the debt, trying to, to one up and get a little ahead with more righteousness and sinfulness. The good news is you can't pay the debt, but Christ paid the debt for you. And that all who turn, repent from their sins and believe in Christ will be saved. That is the good news. So some of you need to see that this morning and say, I am going to respond. I am going to trust Christ today. I'm going to call upon the name of the Lord for the forgiveness of sins. Most of the others in here, like myself, that are believers, you simply need to be reminded of the forgiveness that you have in Christ and rejoice in that. Rejoice in it. Worship him with great thanksgiving and joy, not at what you've done, not at who you are, but all that he has done. The second thing we need to see, we'll get through this quickly. The second thing we need to see is this, is we need to see and know and be reminded what true forgiveness is. I think a lot of us operate with a really faulty understanding of what forgiveness truly is. And we need to understand. Let me give you four things that it's not, and that will help us understand what it is. One, forgiveness is not ignoring wrongdoing or debt. It's not just ignoring wrongdoing or debt. It is a volitional choice to not hold it against another. To forgive a debt is making a choice and and to say that the debt is there. I'm going to take that debt on myself, and you're not going to pay it. I'm going to pay it. Anytime there's a debt owed, it's not just like erased and poof, it vanishes into thin air, does it? We know that financially. We think about it financially. Someone forgives the debt you owe in your car. It's not as though, oh wow, it just went away. No, whoever forgave the debt paid it. It's not just ignoring that. It's it's a call to make that choice. I will not hold it against you. I see what you did. I see what you said. But I'm not going to seek vengeance. I'm not going to demand justice. I'm not going to harbor bitterness. I'm going to make the choice to take it on myself. and I'm going to forgive you. The second thing is that forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Now, I think we can see this when we think about God. Do you really think that you came to Christ? You trusted Him. God forgave you and went, I don't remember if Todd's a sinner or not. I can't recall if there's anything he ever did to sin. Do you really think he forgot that? God's omniscient. He knows all things. He doesn't just forget and go, oh wow, that's beyond my knowledge now. (laughs) That's weird. But, yet, Scripture does say in multiple places, if you want to see a couple, Jeremiah 31, 34, Isaiah 43, 25, that God does not remember your sins. What does that mean? What it means is that God no longer remembers it against you. He no longer holds it against you. It's not as though he has no knowledge of it. We 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 gather in, in eternity, glorified. The picture is not of us in eternity around the throne praising God with no knowledge that we're sinners. No, we're gathered there before the throne. If you read Revelation, we're gathered around the throne. We're praising God because we're there, and we yet were sinners. Because we're praising him. Why? Because he saved us by his grace, and we have no merit of our own to be there. Forgiveness isn't just, I'm just going to forget it. No, forgiveness, again, is making a continual recurring choice to not hold it against another. I teach Some of you guys, we've talked about this for various situations, haven't we? There's three commitments you make when you forgive somebody. I don't know where this originated. This didn't originate with me. There's three commitments that you make when you forgive someone. One, I look and I say, you know what? I'm not going to bring it back up to you over and over and over again. I'm done with that. I'm not going to keep bringing it back up to you. The second commitment you make is I'm not going to bring it back up to others. I'm not going to say, you know what? You wouldn't believe all that he did. You wouldn't believe it, but I've forgiven him. <laughs> That's great, isn't it? The third commitment is this, is I'm not going to bring it back over and over and over and over and over again in my own mind and just keep rehearsing. I can't believe all that he did. I can't believe it. All that does is harbor bitterness, cause a root of bitterness in you. That's not forgiveness. And forgiveness is the volitional choice that every time it comes to mind, I am not bringing it back up. I am not holding it against you. You know this is difficult, don't you? (laughs) Because you're like me. There are times where you have an instance, you hear a song, you go into a place, or you pass somebody in the store, somebody that's hurt you deeply in the past, and you walk by and instantly, boom, everything is brought back to mind, isn't it? In that moment, true forgiveness is, no, I'm not holding it against them. I'm not bringing it back up to them. I'm not going to dwell on it. And I'm not going to go tell everybody else how awful they are and how great I am. That's true forgiveness. Forgiveness is not easy. It's not easy. Rarely have I ever met someone who felt like forgiving another when it was necessary. It's hard. It's difficult. When you ask God to graciously strengthen us to do it. And finally, forgiveness does not remove all consequences of sin. It's not as though when you're forgiven, just boom, everything's gone. There's still at times where consequences occur. I think the thief on the cross is a, maybe a classic example of that. Christ redeemed him, saved him. He still ended up dying for his actions. Does not remove every consequence. As we close, our worship team's coming up. We're going to sing a song, A Debtor to Mercy Alone we held a debt that we could not pay. But we've been forgiven in Christ by God. And what a beautiful thing that is. And so I would say as we respond to the word this morning, there's a couple ways we need to respond. One is believers, that we would pray that we would be postured towards one another with a posture of forgiveness towards one another in grace. That that would be the spirit in which we Walk a spirit of grace and mercy and love and compassion towards one another, that God would strengthen us to forgive each other as God in Christ has forgiven us. And the other way of response would be for those of you who are not believers, that, that you would confess Christ, that you would trust Him, repent of your sins, and believe in Him for the forgiveness of sins as was preached in Acts. That's how we respond this morning. Let's pray we come.